We're looking at Luke 24. We're kind of taking a, a break back from Acts just a little bit, but we're looking at the guy who wrote Acts. We've been looking at Paul and Barnabas and their life and their ministry and what's happening there. Remember, the, the Gospel of Luke is the birth and life of Jesus. Acts is the birth and life of His followers spiritually. And, and so, we're just going to go back a little bit and look at Luke 24. It really, the hinge point of our faith. It, it is the first Easter. And when you stop and think about Jesus for a second in relation to every other religious leader, every other religious figure in the history of the world, Jesus is the most unique person who made the most unique claims. Muhammad never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed that he was going to be resurrected. But Jesus did. Jesus said He was the Son of the Creator God. He was the bridge, the only bridge to that Creator God. He said He was the atonement for our sin. The things that would displease that God. You know, if you look back through uh, literally every civilization that has worshipped any kind of deity, every deity... There was a fear on the part of man of offending that deity. And every time that fear was there, what had to happen? Those humans had to take something to the deity. It was something that had to be offered on their part. Jesus comes and says, no, God comes to you. He's doing it all. That's very absurd in the minds of most men. It was a unique claim. He also claimed to conquer death. No, you know, Buddhism doesn't teach bodily resurrection. Hinduism doesn't teach bodily resurrection. But Jesus says, you will get new bodies. I'm going to be the one who leads the way. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. That was a very unique claim. The resurrection is in all four Gospel accounts. It's the essential truth for our faith. It's the hinge point, like I said. And, you know, Jesus was killed on Friday. And then on Sunday, He was raised. The first day of the week for them. For us, it's our seventh day of the week, we call it normally. But for them, it was the first day of the week. And do you know, that's why we celebrate worship as a congregation on the first day of the week on Sundays because that's when the resurrection happened. We don't meet on Fridays for church. Throughout history, the church has met on the first day of the week because of the resurrection itself. It's the most important event in history, guys. In fact, without, you know, and I know Paul talks about the cross. He says, May I never boast in anything but the cross. Jesus talks about the cross. But without the resurrection, the cross is irrelevant. Jesus is just another guy who dies. 1 Corinthians 15.14, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is in vain. So it's 3 o'clock on Friday. The time of the evening sacrifice. Did you know that? 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's when they did the evening sacrifice. 
That's when Jesus died. He's on the cross, lifeless body. Blood everywhere. A guy named Joseph of Arimathea. A member of the Sanhedrin. A God-fearing man, the Bible says. A believer, but one secretly. He's a secret disciple. Puts his career on the line to keep Jesus' body from being desecrated. Now I want you to... You know, we read over stuff like that in Scripture a lot of times. We don't think about the implications of what's really going on. First of all, this guy has worked his entire life and been ambitious to be part of the upper crust of the Jewish culture. The Sanhedrin was it. You didn't get any higher than that. And he was there. And he risked it all to go ask Pilate for the body to keep Jesus from being desecrated. He and a guy named Nicodemus are another leader among the Jews. And normally... These guys, in fact, not normally, in fact, every day of their life, they avoided dead bodies. Every day of their life, they avoided blood because they did not want to be defiled and unclean. Especially at Passover. It was Passover. But they gave up everything to bury Jesus. It it was a career killer for both of them. Think about that for a second. And what God's saying is, guys, you can't be a secret disciple forever. You can't be a secret disciple. God's not going to allow that. And so, what He says is, okay, Nicodemus, okay, Joseph of Arimathea, it's time for you to put the blood blood on the doorpost. It's time for you to let the world see that you are with My Son. So they did. The Spirit moved them and they went and asked, so that everybody could see that they are His. Guys, our faith is not meant to be private. Personal, yes. Private, no. So, the Sadducees and Pharisees remembered Jesus had taught about these things, that He was going to be resurrected, and they feared that the disciples might try to steal the body away. So they went to Pilate and said, hey, this guy's putting him in a tomb. What are we going to do? They might try to steal it. And so they said, you got a guard. Pilate said, go, go, go secure it. Go take the Romans that are assigned to you. you. Go put a seal on it. Secure it. So there was a stone between one and two tons. A seal of the Romans put on it. And a guard. And Jesus passed through it all. Passed through the grave clothes. Passed through the stone. Passed over the guards. Over it all. And the resurrection is history. It's not an ideology. It's history. It's evidence-bearing history. And this story, actually these three stories in Luke 24, give us three different perspectives of three different groups of people on the post-resurrection of Jesus. And in every case, a question is asked with each group. The first group is women. And angels representing the Most High God say, why do you seek the living among the dead to the women? When the women are going to the tomb. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Don't you remember what He said? 
Don't you remember his word? That's the first question. Second question is two guys walking out of Jerusalem. They're discouraged. Jesus wasn't who he said he was, didn't do what he was said he was going to do in their mind, and they're headed home to Emmaus. And Jesus himself comes alongside them and says, Hey, what are you discussing about me? He doesn't say me, but he says, what are you guys discussing? He knows what they're discussing. Like God in the garden. Adam, where are you? He knew where Adam was. Same way, Jesus says, hey, what are you guys discussing? You think Jesus didn't know what they were talking about? Of course He did. But He's always wanting relationship. So He gives them a chance to respond. And He also added, don't you know these things had to be? In other words, don't you trust My Word? Again, it's about the Word. Remember His Word. In this case, Jesus then interprets the Word for them. And then there's a third group, the apostles. He comes to them. Jesus again, and He says, why are you guys troubled? Don't you remember what I said the night that I was arrested? Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. Don't you remember that, guys? Come on. I told you, don't worry. It's better that I go away and I'm coming back. These are my words, he says in the text today. These are my words. So, three stories. Three groups. All about the Word of God and our lack of faith. Our lack of faith. And guys, what I've seen in my own life and witnessed it in many others' life is usually when our faith wanes, it's because we're not remembering His Word. We don't believe His Word. We don't know His Word. And we certainly aren't putting faith in His promises and His Word to us. We doubt, just like they did in all three cases. And so this is a very instructive passage for us to look at today so we're going to take it in different sections i'm going to hopefully get through right by one but we're going to look at 1 through 12 13 through 35 and then 36 through 53 each section individually and deal with each one of these questions the point the, the whole point of the resurrection is it is the birth of the church as these people are then empowered with this hope that He did what He said He was going to do, and now they're told to go proclaim it. What did we see in every message so far that we've covered in Acts? That when He was preaching to the Jewish people in Acts 3, 2, Acts 5, what did He say? He talks about the resurrection. Peter does. They talk about the resurrection. Paul does. The Scriptures and the resurrection. It is the hinge point. And so that is... The, the thing that the church is birthed out of is that resurrection. And so, let's read the text and just keep this question in the back of your mind. Specifically as it relates to you. Are you seeking the living among the dead? Think about that for a second. Are you seeking life among places of death? A lot of times I find us as guys, we try to find answers in the world 
try to find security in the world. We try to find identity in the world. All those places are places of death. The world is a place of death and brokenness. Never forget that. All these people that, that, that want to hold on to life here. I was talking to a guy this morning, and uh, you know he, he's, he, he got a diagnosis of something, and he, he's really struggling because he's, you know, my, my kids and my grandkids and all that. This is a place of death. And, it's, and, and the enemy tries to whisper in our ear that we need to hold on to this with some kind of affection that's greater than the affection that we have for God the Father and Creator that wants us to ultimately be in relationship with Him. None of us would want that with our own kids. And, and, and in essence, what it is, it's like a child who loves a gift you give him more than he loves you. And every day here is a gift. It's a stewardship. We're going to see that later. And so keep that in mind. Are we seeking the living among the dead? Are we doing that? Read the Scripture through your own life and let it be a mirror for us as we go through this. So let's go through this. And, and basically, as we're going through this, I want to point out four things that you're going to see in every gospel account. By the way, when I was an FBI agent, I put a, a guy on the stand or I put... If we went to trial, okay, we would have multiple witnesses. No, we never went to trial with only one witness. We have multiple witnesses. And FBI agents, we, we rarely went to trial. Like only 10% of the time did we go to trial. If we went to trial, we had an overwhelming case with overwhelming witnesses. But when I put witnesses on the stand, they never told exactly the same story. Because if they all said exactly the same thing, what's the jury going to think? Well, they've got together and they collaborated on this. They all had different perspectives. And basically, they told the same story. Well, that's the way it is in the Gospels. You see four accounts. There's four things that the resurrection itself is one of the most meticulously described events in Scripture in all four accounts. They go painstakingly overboard to make sure that you are aware that these people are witnesses to things. And so, as we think about that, there's four truths in every Gospel. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see in all four accounts, one, there's an empty tomb. There's an empty tomb in all four accounts. The tomb was empty. Second, there was angelic witnesses. There were angels. Like Angels have been throughout the history of Israel. They've, they've been God's messengers. But there were angels there to witness to people in all four Gospel accounts. Three, in all four Gospel accounts, there were women witnesses. Is that significant? You bet. It is. It's very significant. We're going to look at it why in a second. That's the third thing. The fourth thing is that is evident, and this is the sad thing of all of them, the unbelief of the apostles. The men who walked with Him for three years, even when they were told about the evidence, still were skeptical. 
That encourages me, even though it's sad. (laughs) It's very encouraging that God is a gracious God. So let's read starting in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, we're in Luke 24. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Now who is this talking about? We've well, got to go back to verse 55 of 23. It says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices. So it's the women they're talking about here when it says they. Verse uh, 3, or verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, if you do all four Gospels and get a picture of what happens, these women here are absent Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is one of the first ones at the tomb. She goes in, she sees the grave clothes there, but she's, well, she may, I don't even know if she sticks her head in. I think she just comes up, she sees the stone rolled about, the body's not in there. She is panicked because they've stolen her Lord's body. She goes back to tell Peter, James, and John, and the other apostles who are locked in a room at uh, John Mark's mother's house, probably. And as Mary goes to tell them, these women who were a little slower than her get there. And when they get there, there's angels. The angels begin talking to them. And this is what the angels say. First notice what they did in their response. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, why would they be frightened? Every time there's an angelic appearance in the Bible, people get afraid. That's why when people say, I saw an angel the other day. Well, you didn't know it was an angel because if you knew it was an angel, you'd have been scared out of your mind. I'm serious. Every time in Scripture you see an angel appearance, what is the first thing they say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's why people have all these angelic encounters. I I question if they're really authentic or not. Because they talk about them like I'm talking to Jeff right here. You know, Jeff, I'm just talking. We're just slap back happy and talking about stuff. And so they were afraid. And it says, as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Real quick. Does an angel speak autonomously and independently or do they say what God wants them to say? They they speak for God. And they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Remember God's Word? Remember what Jesus said? Why why women, guys? First of all, where's the men? Yeah, they are. Just like Adam did. Yeah. Where's the men? The men aren't here. Listen, the women saw Jesus die on the cross. 
There was one man there out of his apostles and disciples. You know who it was? It was John. Only one. How many people do you have to have to be witnesses? Two. In the Jewish legal system, you had to have two. There were multiple women there. Mary, the mother of James, was there. Mary Magdalene was there. There were at least, they believe, six to ten women there. They don't come. Yes, they do. Well, what I'm saying is that... In the Jewish culture, they didn't, but with God, they did. And the reason they counted is because they were the ones who saw Him die. They were representatives who saw Him die. Then, they also saw Him buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So they saw Him die. They saw Him buried. So who is He now going to appear to? These women. Because they are the only ones that can be credible witnesses who see Him die, see Him buried, and then see Him resurrected. Because it's not about a post resurrection appearance necessarily as much as it's about the credibility of what he said he was going to do and what he did. No one of them, not one of them, even the women did not think about his resurrection initially. When Mary Magdalene gets back to the house, Peter and John run to go check it out. And they find an empty tomb. And then what did they do? They went back to the house. It's about evidence, guys. The angels weren't there. Why weren't the angels there for Peter and John? But they were there for the women. Why? The women had been there at the foot of the cross. The women had been there with the burial. And God says, my angels are going to go talk to Him. Why did the angels talk to the shepherds and not the wise men? Why did the wise men have to seek Him, but the angel went to the shepherds? Because the people who were humble in heart are the ones that the angels are going to come to. And that's what happened. The angels came and revealed themselves. And the Gospels all go into great details about these witnesses. Why? Because this is the hinge point. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And the I am the life part, that's the most important aspect of His claim. It implies that He's got to live for eternity and be able to convey that eternal life to Me. And if He's not resurrected, that all goes away. If Jesus Christ didn't raise from the dead, He is not the truth and He's not the way. It's the whole basis for the credibility of His message. If He didn't raise from the dead and conquer death, then Christians are the biggest fools this side of heaven. I've wasted 27 years of my life going all over the world telling people about Him. If He didn't raise Himself from the dead. If He didn't raise Himself from the dead, then you're you're wasting your time being here today. You're wasting any time you spend reading this book. The whole focus of his life 
related to substantiating the claims that he was going to die. Three days later, he was going to rise again to prove he conquered death, he conquered sin, he conquered Satan, and he made it possible for us to be in a right relationship with a Creator. There was a guy named Philip Schaff who was a historian. He, was a, he wrote the history of the Christian church. He said the infinite test question to Christianity is the resurrection. It's either the greatest miracle that ever happened or it's the greatest delusion in history. And so we're basically left with that question, did Jesus rise from the dead? If so, what proof is there? What evidence exists to support His claim? Evidence, guys, when you try to prove something wrong or right, there's two ways that we usually do it. One it's called the scientific method. You can go into a laboratory, you, can, um, you, you have a hypothesis, and then you have things that happen to try to create or, or, or prove something. And if that can be repeated, then it is scientifically proven that A plus B causes C. But that doesn't work to say proving George Washington was president of the United States. It's not a repeatable thing. So you have to resort to historical, legal, evidentiary proof to prove something like George Washington was president. Is there anybody in this room that doubts that George Washington was president of the United States? We grew up hearing history books written about it. There's evidence. There's his name. There's diaries. There's all kinds of things that people testify to that they saw and then their fathers, 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 fathers saw people that actually knew Him. So there's all kind of witness testimony. And so we have to ask the question, is testimony about the resurrection reliable? Because when testimony is evaluated, you got to you got to decide if it's verifiable or if it's falsified. I mean, if it's wrong. Like, for instance, if I say, hey, it's raining outside, that's an easily verifiable fact, right? If you go outside and you don't get wet and you don't see rain, then it's a lie. But if you go out there and you feel raindrops and you see it, you go, okay, that's true. That's easily verifiable. Well, those same principles can be applied to the Bible and what it says about the resurrection. There's a guy named John Capley who was a um, professor at Cambridge. He actually rose up to the highest court in England and was the chief judge. And he was recognized as one of the greatest legal minds in British history. And he said, I know well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection of Jesus has never broken down yet. And he said that like a couple of hundred years ago after hundreds and hundreds of years. You think people haven't been trying to break down the resurrection over the years? You think Satan hadn't been trying to destroy the evidence and destroy people's belief in the evidence? And he said that. I wish personally everybody would try to disprove the resurrection. I would love for people to, to go in and try to disprove it because you know what happens to people when they do? Have you guys ever heard of a guy named Simon Greenleaf? Simon Greenleaf was a Harvard Law professor and he was actually the head of the Department of Law. And he wrote a book called The Principles of Legal Evidence. 
three of his students challenged him to take his book principles and apply it to the resurrection, and so he took them up on it. And after he did that, he said this, there's no better documented historical evidence than for the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, I'm convinced that you can convince any jury in America or England that Jesus rose from the dead with that evidence. A guy named Frank Morrison was a British lawyer, and he went out and and set out to write a book disproving the resurrection based on legal evidence. But he ended up not writing the book he intended to write. Instead, he wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? And he found the evidence so overwhelming that he was forced to accept it and he became a believer. Josh McDowell did the same thing. He wrote a book called More Than a Carpenter. Lou Wallace did the same thing. He wrote Ben-Hur. Remember that movie with Charlton Heston years ago? That was based on that book. There are three specific evidences that Christians and non-Christians agree on. First, there was a historical Jesus who was crucified. Even non-biblical sources testify to that. Historical sources. Second, non-biblical sources also agree with the Bible that the tomb was empty. There was an empty tomb. All they had to do was produce a body. If they could have produced a body, end of story. It's done with. But they didn't. Third, and by the way, don't think that they didn't try to find a body. You'd think they didn't turn Israel upside down looking? Are you kidding me? Third thing that non-biblical sources agree on is there was an Easter proclamation. He is risen. Guys, there was a one to two ton stone in front. It had a Roman seal, which basically if you violated that, if you broke that seal to move that, you could be executed and probably would be. There were at least four to 16 guards there. At least four. I don't know what happened when the earthquake happened. There was an earthquake that, that the stone then rolled away. But the guards left. At least there was only a couple of them there. And three days later, that tomb was empty on, on Sunday morning. It was empty. Chuck Colson, many of you remember him. There's a quote that floats around always at, at, at Easter, and I love it. Chuck Colson wasn't a believer before he went into jail. And it wasn't jail that made him a believer, by the way. He says, I know that the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. He said, because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten and tortured and stoned and put in prison. They would have not endured that if it hadn't been true. He said Watergate took 12 of the most powerful men in the world at that time, back in the late 60s, early 70s. We couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles kept alive for 40 years knowing it was a lie? Absolutely impossible. He's right. Andrew, crucified on a cross. 
Barnabas, stoned to death by Jews. Bartholomew, beaten to death with clubs. James, the half-brother of Jesus, stoned. James, the less, thrown from the top of the temple and beaten. Jude, crucified. Matthew, killed by the scourge. Peter, scourged, crucified upside down. Matthias, stoned and beheaded. Philip, scourged and crucified. Simon, crucified. Simon the Zealot. Thomas, thrust through with a a spear. James, the son of Zebedee, killed by a sword. Thaddeus, killed by arrows. Even though they weren't the members of the original twelve, Paul was beheaded, Luke hanged on an olive tree, and Mark burned to death. So why would they fabricate a story and go through those things? That, that, That makes no sense. It makes no sense. You see, when the resurrection initially happened, they didn't really believe Jesus was going to do it. But after several weeks, this same group became emboldened. They became courageous. What caused the change? Was it just an empty tomb? I don't think so. Well, second, we see in the second section, two guys a lot like us on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus comes along and basically says, hey, what are you guys talking about? Let's look at it, verse 13. That very day, what day? The day that after these women had seen, heard the words, they went, told the disciples, and the disciples go, man, it's great. Jesus has been resurrected. He appeared to the women. Right? Isn't that what happened? No, I missed that. I'm sorry. I need to go back. It said, no, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. What? Really? Peter, you walked on water. There's an empty tomb. They're saying that He appeared. And it says they didn't believe them. Plus, He had told all the apostles multiple times that He was going to rise on the third day. Yeah. And so they went. It says Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooped and looked in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. So he goes back going, wow, the tomb is empty. Now at the same time that he goes back to that house, probably John Mark's house, locks the door and he's saying, guys, they're right, the tomb is empty. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. I love that guys, what goes on here. Because these were just two ordinary men who were despairing and confused about the Gospel. Because it wasn't adding up. Jesus said He was going to change everything. He said He was going to be the one to rule. He was going to be the the, the shepherd. And they had this vision of what that looked like, but it wasn't what it was going to be. It was what their vision of what it looked like was going to be. Do we struggle with that sometimes? Does our vision of our life not add up to what God's vision of our life is sometimes? And we get frustrated. We get just like them, confused. We get, it just doesn't add up. God, I'm doing all the right things. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to Bible study. I'm going to church. I'm giving money. I'm serving. 
Why is life so hard? And they were sad. They were discouraged. But notice the tenderness of our King. It says, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. I love that. He just came right alongside of them. It says, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. Well, who keeps their eyes from recognizing Him? Only one person. Because it's the only person that can open their eyes to see Him. And so He kept their eyes closed for a reason. And you know what that reason was? Because He wanted them to have faith in Him because of the Word that He spoke and their trust in His Word. It was about this and the Word. And so it always starts with God. God wrote this through His faithful servants. This is not someone's private interpretation. This is God's Word to us. And He wants us, He wants us to trust in Him through His Word. And that's what He was trying to get across here. And so, we go up here and He says, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. That gives you insight into their disposition. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now guys, that's what you call biblical divine humor right there. Because they're asking the one person that knows exactly what happened and they don't. And he's, it's just, it's funny. It's irony and it's humorous. I think it's so humorous that God put that in here that Cleopas asked him, Are you the only God don't know what's going on? And he's the only one that does know what's going on. And he said to them, What things? He wanted to see what they were going to say. And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Listen, these guys are just like the Muslims. They see Jesus as a prophet, not a divine Son of God. They don't see Jesus as divine here. Because look at what they say. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered Him up to be condemned to death and crucified Him. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped He was Messiah, but He let us down. That's what they said. Can you imagine what Jesus is thinking as He's just sitting there with them? I mean, how many times did He go to the disciples? Come on, guys, really? When are you going to get this? How many times do I have to show you? Do I have to tell you? Do you ever feel like that in your own life? You just sit back? Huh? It's a pretty big ask. It's a huge ask. But when the God of the universe reveals Himself the way He did to them, have you ever seen a guy feed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish? I mean, have you ever ever seen anybody raise somebody from the dead? Have you ever seen somebody uh, heal somebody who has been born blind or been born lame? I mean, like they were firsthand witnesses to all of that. It wasn't as if he just said, okay, I'm, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again, 
You just got to believe in me. There were accompanying signs that all pointed back to Scripture. Everything God said was going to happen, happened. And they still didn't believe. But notice his gentleness. And he says, and and they say, verse uh, uh, 21, Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. They knew exactly what Jesus said, that He was going to rise again on the third day. They didn't believe it. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and they didn't find His body. They came back and said they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. That's two forms of evidence right there. The women testified. They saw an empty tomb. The women talked about the angels as witnesses. And these men didn't believe it. Sometimes, guys... We can see the evidence and still disregard it. And these apostles did that. Yes, it was a big ask. But there was evidence, guys. The whole point of what's going on here is for you and me to say, there is evidence we have to weigh in our relationship with God. And that's what, that's what he's saying this for. And he says in verse 25, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Notice he doesn't even say, believe in me at this point. He says, you're foolish not to believe in what God's Word says. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things about Himself. God prevents them from seeing and and knowing Him because He wants them to have faith in His Word. Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing the words of Christ. Jesus takes His Word and what He does, He teaches, He opens their eyes up. Guys, listen, nobody saw the resurrection just like nobody saw creation. But if you go to Hebrews 11, verses 1-3, through it says, this is faith. It's the conviction of what? Things not seen, but you believe it. I believe God created the earth in six days. I didn't watch Him do it. But I believe it because His Word says that. I I, I believe it because Jesus affirmed that when Jesus spoke. I don't care what some uh, scientist from MIT says. I don't care what some guy who says, well, the earth is billions of years old says. It may look billions of years old to His flawed human eyes and His method. Listen, are we flawed as human beings? Is an MIT scientist flawed? When Jesus turned the water into wine and it was the best wine ever for you wine drinkers, how long does it take the wine to be really, really, really good? Years. Years. So if you took that wine that was in that, that, that... Base that water carrier, and you took that to a laboratory and had it analyzed, what would they assess the length of time that wine had been fermenting? Do you see what I'm saying? So if He can do that with wine, can He do that with the earth? Can He make something that in our way of evaluating looks a lot longer than it actually took Him to do? I'm just saying, I take it because it's His Word and He's saying, you foolish guys, you don't listen. And He 
told them about the Word. He unveils the truth about Moses. He starts probably in Genesis 3 and he goes, that's me stomping on the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15 He's snapping at my feet. I had to suffer, guys. But I'm stomping on his head right now. That's me, Exodus. I'm the blood over the doorpost. I'm in Deuteronomy. I'm the mediator Moses talked about. And so he took him through the whole Old Testament. I'm the Melchizedek that David spoke about. I'm, I'm the one that I'm the one that is the priest and the king. And so it says in verse 32, didn't our hearts burn? And eventually he opened the scriptures to them and he opened their eyes. And when he broke the bread, they believed and, and saw that it was him. Then it says he was gone. Then it says they rose that same hour, verse 33, they went to Jerusalem and found them gathered. And they said, the Lord has risen again and He's appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how He had known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now this is what? The women have come to the disciples and now, guess what? Here are these two guys come back. Disciples still in a locked house. And the third question, Jesus Himself walks in there. Doors locked, and all of a sudden he's in the room. That freaked me out. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> I'm in a locked room. The door's locked, and all of a sudden, whoo, this guy who was supposed to be dead is there. And it says, He appeared and said, Peace to you. He didn't say, You knuckleheads. He says, Shalom. But they were startled and frightened. They thought they saw a spirit and He said to them, and here's the third question, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Basically, why do you doubt? See my hands? See my feet? It is Me. Touch Me. See. For a spirit does not have flesh and bone as you see and have. And when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His feet. Now you would think that would be enough. And it says, and while they still disbelieved, for joy and were marveling. They were kind of taken back, but they thought he was a ghost. He said to them, hey, you got anything to eat here? <laughs> Give me a piece of food. I'll show you my body. I, I, I'm going to put it in my mouth and it's going to go through a physical process in my mouth. I'm going to chew it and it's going to go down into my stomach just like you. And so they gave him some broiled fish. He took it and he ate it. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you. He's taking them back to His Word again. These are my words. I was still with you when I said this, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled again. Where does He go? He goes back to Scripture. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Again, we see it again. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city till you're clothed with power on high. Guys, do you realize 95% of the people in the country who go to church have never told one person about Jesus? 95%. We're responsible. This is not an option for me and you. Think about it in your own life. In the last week, how many people have you told about the resurrection? In the last week, how many people have you told about the Gospel? In the last week, how many people have you even thought to pray that God would give you an opportunity? We just don't think that way because we've evolved 
in such a way that we made it about going to a place on Sunday morning, being fed, being nourished. And I'll tell you, we, instead of being custodians of the truth about Jesus, we are just consumers of the truth about Jesus. But we were chosen to be custodians. We are to be messengers. There's, there's, we're, we, first of all, He chose us. Ephesians 1 said it before the foundation of the world. He chose us. And He says, listen, this is not about an ideology. This is about a historic fact. This really happened. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and Him crucified. That's a big deal. We ought to be telling people, this week is the best week to share the Gospel. Without Jesus, the Bible... Spirituality makes no sense. The law, the temple, nothing makes sense without Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, For to this day, when the old covenant is read, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. When you know Jesus, you understand the promises of God. When you know Jesus, you understand the covenant of God. You understand the purposes of God. You understand our purpose in being here. You understand that our world's broken and we are hope bringers. And so we're chosen, we're custodians, but we're messengers to tell people the truth about Jesus. 2 Kings 7 is a story of some lepers. And Syria has engulfed this city and come down. All these Israelites are starving. They put a siege around it. People are eating donkey heads. They're eating dung. They're eating each other. Can you imagine? We have not been to that place, you and me. But that would be an awful place, wouldn't you agree? And there's some lepers in the city. It goes, this was ridiculous. Man, we're going to die one way or the other. We'd be better off to go to the Syrians and just have them kill us than sit here and do this. So they leave, go outside the gate, and they find something amazing. The Syrians are gone. Their food's there. Their treasure's there. They go, we've hit the jackpot. I mean, and, and so they, they start going, this is awesome. We can enjoy this. And we're usually shunned by people and we're the ones, we're out here, we got all this. And one of them looks at another and goes, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news. We can't keep this to ourselves. If we wait and we don't tell people, punishment is going to overtake us. And that's what we do in the church. We just consume it and we don't share it. We're like the Dead Sea. You know, nothing grows in the Dead Sea because water comes in, but it doesn't go out. And so it becomes stagnant in there and it doesn't flow. We are meant to be a conduit of God's grace and the hope of Jesus to the world around us. There's not a better week in the whole calendar than this week to do that. We're messengers of the truth, but we're not just chosen and custodians and messengers. We're protected and secure in Him. Listen, I admit we live in a time that it's tough to proclaim the supremacy of God. But you know, there's two great blessings in the Bible. And, and this, this, what he does after he says this, he blesses them. He led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands and he blessed them. When he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So he blesses them. And you know how the Jewish people usually bless? There were two great blessings. One in Genesis 1. 
be fruitful and multiply at the start of their life. Be fruitful and multiply. But there was another blessing whenever they were going to do something. They were going out. And we do it as a, a, a benediction a lot of times. It's from number six. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May His face and His grace shine upon you. May He lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. And that was said when they were getting ready to go into the promised land. The job. God's with you. You don't have to fear. Now, there was a blessing like that at the end of Matthew when Jesus said, listen, go make disciples. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded and what? I am with you always. Was He with Paul when Paul went through the Taurus Mountains and he got stoned? When Paul got five beatings with 39 lashes? When Paul got beaten three times? Was God not there? Of course He was there. Was He not with Paul and Peter when they imprisoned multiple times? Of course He was there. On that ship, do you remember in Acts 28 or 27 when Paul's on the ship and it's deadly? I mean, they, their people are about to die. And Paul says, well, don't worry. The angel of the Lord came told me we're all going to live. We're good. We just can't let those guys get away because <laughs> if we let them get away, we're going to die. And the Romans immediately made the sailors come back because they were going to beat feet. But God was there and He told Paul, you're going to live. And Paul conveyed that. He was a messenger of light. Guys, we have a responsibility to be a messenger of hope and of light. And I don't know if you've been doing that. I don't know where you are. But here's the message. God created you and me for a dependent relationship with Him where when we wake up in the morning, we say, I'm yours. This is your day. Show me how to glorify you. I live. Like Scotty Scheffler, who won the Masters, said, I play golf to glorify God. I don't get my identity from golf. Golf gives me a platform to glorify God. And he did. I'm telling you, he did. I wish you could have heard all the announcers talk about him the whole time. I bet they mentioned his faith seven or eight times that I heard. In his Bible study with his caddy. Yeah. It was awesome. He lives to glorify God. And you and I should too. But God created us for that. But because of our selfishness, we don't do that. We break away. We lead our own life. And, and the Bible says we earn death. Eternal separation from God. No hope, no help. But God in His mercy sent His Son Jesus to die on a cross and, and to prove He was who He said He was in accordance with the Scriptures. He raised the dead, healed the blind, healed the lame, authenticated that He was God's divine Messiah. And He said, I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. Anybody who believes in Me, not just the facts about Me, who believes in Me, I will come and put My Spirit in Him and they will be Mine and nothing can ever take them away. That's the Gospel. And He says, you guys go be witnesses to that. And that's how it ends. And that's what happens. And that's where Luke takes off. And we've already covered the first 15 chapters of Luke and we saw what God did. It continues to spread. And you're here today because of their ministry. The question is, who's going to be here in 80 years because of your ministry? So my encouragement is this week, guys, pray for an opportunity. Be a light. Be a witness. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your love. And thank You for Your Word. Lord, we so often blow it. We just get distracted and we allow the world to silence us. May we be bold 
No longer secret disciples. Let us be bold for You. Unashamed of our love for You and Your love for us. If there's anybody here today, Father, who's not bowed their heart to You, I pray that before they step out the door, they would bow their heart to You and say, You are mine. I trust in You, Jesus, as my Messiah. I want God to be my Father, and I want to live the rest of my life for You. Thank You for the cross, and thank You for forgiveness. For those who've already done that, Lord, please, Lord, Focus our attention on being the light you've called us to be. Empower us with your spirit that we might go walk in that spirit and be a living testimony of the resurrection and the hope of Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. Where's the uh, lepers? I've never read that.